Good evening. Welcome to Random Bible Thoughts with Russ. Tonight's study, we're going to be looking at the traditional wedding, biblical wedding, and how there's similarities between the traditional wedding and I call it second coming of Christ, but in reality, it's uh, all events that happened during Christ's time. Uh, here on earth. So this is going to be a two-part study. It's got kind of long and in-depth. So we'll just get right into it here. As soon as I find my cursor, there it is. Okay. In the biblical times, a Jewish wedding could be said to it reflects the, or foreshadows the life events of Christ, or as I put here, the second coming of Christ. It, the whole thing, it's you stretch it out from the beginning to the end, and it, it reflects events of Christ. And as I look into the study, I'll show the similarities between the wedding process and Christ. And there are several stages in the Jewish wedding that are very uh, symbolic or, meta or metaphoric, and could be shown to show the stages of Christ's life on here, when he arrived, what he did, and when he leaves, and when he comes back. So let's look at the basic steps of a wedding. The father of the groom picks the bride. The groom leaves his father's house to go purchase the bride. A dowry is paid. A covenant is made. The bride accepts the covenant. The groom goes home to build a house or in addition to his father's home for the bride. A trumpet is sounded and a shout to announce the groom's arrival for his bride. And then there is a wedding feast. So who is the bride and who is the bridegroom? The bride are the ones who are true believers of Christ and Christ is the bridegroom. This can be seen in a metaphor in Ephesians 5.25. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Looking at this verse, we can see that the husband is the bridegroom and the wife is the bride. Just as Christ is the bridegroom and the church is the bride, the true followers of Christ. And I, I say I use that term true followers of Christ because the the bride, the body of Christ, the the church is not a building, and it's not even everybody that goes to that building to worship God, because there are some that go that are just it's tradition, they go, they do their duty you will and then they leave and there's no Christ in them and just as Christ sacrificed himself up for the church that is the body of Christ the true believers of Christ the husband should have a sacrificial love for his wife so the bride is the church true believers are followers of Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ is the bridegroom and here's a little bit of a side note here, which I found kind of interesting. That if Paul's, uh, Paul only dedicates nine, or nine verses 
to the duties of the husband and three verses to the duties of the wife in Ephesians 5. So what does that tell me? That tells me that the responsibility of the husband, and I don't want to make this sound, but he is more emphasizing what the husband is supposed to be doing for his bride, for his wife, than what the wife is supposed to do for her husband. And I'm not going to get into the um, cement here and all that, because quite frankly, that's a two-way street. All right? So... I'm not going to get in that. I think I've talked about it in other studies, and maybe I'll do a particular study on that specifically. But it's just that it's interesting that Paul dedicates nine verses to the duties of the husband, only three verses to the duty of the wife. So let's take a look at this step by step. The father of the groom picks the bride. In Ephesians 1, 3 through 5b, it says this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Bridegroom, who has blessed us, the church, that is the bride, in Christ with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places. Even as he has chosen us, that he is God, chose us in him, that is Christ, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoptions to himself as sons, or as I am using, since I'm using the wedding and marriage of two people, marriage of Christ and marriage of the church, bringing them together as adoptions to himself as sons, or as I have put here in parentheses, and this is just my, my thought here, as in-laws through Jesus Christ. We can see in this verse that the Father chose the bride before the foundations of the earth. That the followers of Christ would be the bride of Christ, the bridegroom. The groom leaves his father's house to go purchase the bride. The bridegroom, or groom, was with the father. And I use groom more often than the bridegroom just because it's, it's shorter. We, you know what I mean. Sure. In John 1.1, 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. The Word, it's Greek, is Logos. Oh, it's rolled too far. And who is this Word that we, that was with God and is God? Who is this Word that was with God and is God? John 1, 14. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen his glory, glory as only the Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Verse 1 tells us the Word is God and has always been with God. That's why in the beginning, you know, it's, it's an identification of through all eternity, the Word was with God and the Word is God. Verse 14 tells us that God became flesh and dwelt among the people. This verse also identifies the second person of the Trinity, the Son, who came from the Father. And verse 15 and 16, just to keep the context, John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me. He became because he was before me. 
For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. And this verse 17 identifies who this word is, who is God, this word that is God. John 1.17, for the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. In the beginning was the word, in the beginning was the Logos, and the Logos was with God, and the Logos is God, and that Logos is Jesus Christ. Jesus is the bridegroom, and John 3.29 identifies Jesus as the bridegroom. And let's get a little context before I read that verse. In John 3, 22 through 30, Jesus and his disciples, and John and his disciples, were baptizing people on opposite sides of the Jordan. And the discussion by the Jews with John arose. Now, in the Greek, the word Jews would signify that these are the leadership. These the Pharisees and Sadducees, those types, the leadership. There may have been some regular Jews that aren't in that leadership role, but the word identifies Jews, these particular Jews, as the leadership. The Jews said, all the people are going to the one you bore witness to. In John 1, 29, he bore witness to. He said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. For baptism, John answered in verse 27 and 28, A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given to him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. And John continues in 29, The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. And John is talking about Jesus. He is the bridegroom. He has the bride. In all these verses, we can see that the word who is God, who is Jesus the Christ, who is the bridegroom, who left his father's side and to come and pay the price for his bride. A dowry is paid. The dowry that Jesus paid was his death on the cross. He paid the ultimate sacrifice. Although he was without sin, he took on the penalty of our sin. The sin of the whole world. He took on that penalty on the cross. That was the dowry that he paid. In 1 Peter 2.24, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wound you have been healed. This is a quote from Isaiah 53.6. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way and the Lord has laid on him the iniquities of us all. I'd like to read this same verse in the complete Jewish Bible. It's Isaiah 53. I said 6 there. Oh, hey. I'm going to read 5 and 6, actually, I think. Because I like how 5 
uh, is. Okay, in verse 5 first in Isaiah 53 in the New uh, Complete Jewish Bible. But he was wounded because of our crimes, crushed because of our sins. The discipline that makes us whole fell on him. By his bruises we are healed. And there's a little asterisk, a footnote basically. And that last section, that verse could be read as this. The discipline that makes us who fell on him and in fellowship with him, we are healed. In fellowship with him, we are healed. I love that. That sounds great. In our fellowship with Christ, we are healed. We all like sheep went astray. We turned each one to his own way. Yet Adonai laid on him the guilt of us all. So I, I like how that reads in the complete Jewish Bible. In fellowship with him we are healed. In fellowship. That's awesome. Are you in fellowship with Christ? Are you healed? Do you have that peace? Do you have that that um, that joy? That unending joy? That unending peace? And I'm getting off track here. Let me continue on. Romans 5, 1 through 11. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our suffering, knowing that suffering produces endurance, Endurance produces character, character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has given it to us. But while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will severe sure Surely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one might dare to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood. Much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For in a while we were enemies, we were Reconciled to God by the death of his son. Much more now that we are reconciled. Shall we be saved by his life? More than that we also rejoice in God. Through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through whom we have received reconciliation. I love that word. Reconciliation. By Jesus Christ taking on the penalty of our sins, we have been reconciled to God. Jesus paid the price that we should not pay in any way, or shape, or form. Jesus paid the price that we could not pay in any way, shape, or form. Romans 6, 9. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin 
once and for all, but that the life he lives, he lives to God. Christ cannot die again. He died for our sins. That was the final sacrifice. No other sacrifices are needed. In the Old Testament days, when they sacrificed oxen, sheep, whatever it was they were sacrificing for sin, they had to keep doing it. Not anymore. That system is no longer valid. Only through Christ Jesus dying for our sins can we be saved. Can we have reconciliation. So the dowry is paid. Through his death on the cross, he paid the dowry. Now he makes. A, now we have a covenant. And a covenant is basically an agreement between two parties. And there are several covenants in the Old Testament. That can also, and the Old Testament can also be called the Old Covenant, just as the New Testament could be called the New Covenant. And I have a list here of uh, five or so covenants and just a brief description of what they are. I'm going to go through them just for some general information about covenants. That's all. The Adamic Covenant can be thought of in two parts. The Edenic Covenant, Innocence, and the Adamic Adamic Covenant Grace. Genesis 3, 16-19. The Adamic Covenant is found in Genesis 1, 26-32, 16-17. The Adamic Covenant outlined man's responsibility towards creation and God's directive regarding the tree of knowledge of good and evil. The Adamic Covenant included the curses pronounced against mankind for the sin of Adam and Eve as well as God's provisions for that sin, Genesis 3.15. The Noahic Covenant. The Noahic Covenant was an unconditional covenant between God and Noah specifically and humanity in general. Generally, After the flood, God promised humanity that he would never again destroy all the life on earth with the flood. You can see that in Genesis chapter 9. God gave the rainbow as a sign of the covenant a promise that the entire earth would never again be flooded and reminded that God can and will judge sin. Now you can see that in 2 Peter 2.5. The Abrahamic covenant in Genesis and a whole lot of verses there. From 12 through Genesis chapter 12 through Genesis chapter 22. In this covenant, God promised many things to Abraham. He personally promised that he would make Abraham named great that Abraham would have numerous physical descendants and that he would be the father of multiple nations. God also made promises regarding the nation called Israel. In fact, in geographical boundaries of the Abrahamic covenant are laid out on more than one occasion in the book of Genesis. It's uh, Genesis 12, 13, and 15 chapters. Another provision in the Abrahamic covenant is that the families of the world would be blessed through the physical line of Abraham. Abraham, through Abraham's lineage, the families of the world would be blessed. The world would be blessed. And you can see that in Genesis 12 and 22. This is a reference to the Messiah and would come from the line of Abraham. The Mosaic Covenant, Deuteronomy 11. The Mosaic Covenant was a conditional covenant that either brought God's direct blessing for obedience, 
or God's direct cursing for disobedience upon the nation of Israel. Part of the Mosaic Covenant was the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20, and the rest of the law, which contained over 600 commands, roughly 300 positive and 300 negative. The history books of the Old Testament, Joshua and Esther, detail how Israel succeeded in obeying the law, or how Israel failed miserably at obeying the law. In Deuteronomy 11, 26-28 details the blessings and cursings. The Davidic Covenant, 2 Samuel 7, 8-12. The Davidic Covenant applies, amplifies, excuse me, the seed aspect of the Abrahamic Covenant. The promises to David in this passage are significant. God promised that David's lineage would last forever, that his kingdom would never pass away permanently. Verse 16. Obviously, the Davidic throne has not been in place at all times. There will be a time, however, when someone from the line of David will again sit on the throne and rule as king. This future king is Jesus. Luke 1, 32-33. The New Covenant, Jeremiah 31, verses 31-34. The New Covenant is a covenant made first with the nation of Israel and ultimately with all mankind in the New Covenant. God promises to forgive sin. That sounds familiar, right? And there will be universal knowledge of the Lord. Jesus Christ came to fulfill the law of Moses in Matthew 5:17, and created a new covenant between God and his people. Now that we are under the new covenant, both Jews and Gentiles can be free from the penalty of the law. We are now given the opportunity to receive salvation as a free gift. You see that in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. There is one covenant in the New Testament, or the new covenant. This is the covenant that was mentioned in Jeremiah 31-31-34. This covenant was achieved through the death and resurrection of Jesus the Christ. The Jews rejected Christ, so his, this covenant was extended to the Gentiles. Okay, now we have all the people of the world. Fulfilling the covenant made in Jeremiah. Acts 13-44-47 uh, The next Sabbath... Almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. But when Jesus saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reveling him. And Paul Barnes spoke out boldly, saying, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you, that is the Jews, but since you thrust it aside, throw it away, don't listen to it, I don't want to hear this, and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life before life. Behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. The Jews had to come to them first. And they said, I don't want no part of this. This is blasphemous. I don't want to hear it. You remember my last study, uh, talking in John 5, the last couple verses of 5. It talking about the witnesses of Jesus. Moses wrote about Jesus 
in scripture. The Torah had the Jesus. The um, Tanaka talked about Jesus. They didn't want to hear it. That's not what they want to see. They wanted a king to come and rule over them and take them out from under the hands of the Roman Empire. But that's not what Jesus came to do. He came to save mankind. Okay, let me see where I'm at. I'm sorry, I got off track there a little bit. For verse 47, For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. So by bringing the the message, the covenant, extend the covenant to the Jews first, and they, well, and, you know, I'm going to be a little bit more specific. And let me see, I had a footnote up here. Yeah. Yeah, I talked about this earlier, too. That uh, the, um, when it says the Jews, talking about the Jews, this is the Jewish leaders and others under their influence. And it's also mentioned in verse 50, the same thing. It's They said no. Well, what it said, it contradicted them, spoken to them, reveling them. They were jealous about the, the crowds they were getting. And so they said, no. Crowds at the Paul and Barnabas were getting there. Go, no. I don't want no part of this. This is blasphemous. Forget you. And that's the polite way of saying it. This new covenant that God made is one and done. At this point, the bride, the followers of Christ, have been chosen. The dowry has been paid, Christ's death, and subsequent resurrection. A covenant has been made that all can have sins forgiven for eternal life with Christ. Okay, that's going to end part one. And I don't know if I'm going to get part two out before the new year because there's just a lot going on with Christmas coming up and then the new year. And um, might be getting some snow up here in South Dakota here over Christmas. So I might be busy pushing snow at the hospital. But anyways, that's the end of part one. Part two will be, uh, if I don't get it next week, it'll be in the next year, which is fine. But part two will start with the bride accepts the covenant. You know, we got a covenant made, dowry paid. Jesus sent, comes to the earth to get his, to pay that dowry, and God has chosen us. All right. Um, I'd like to uh, have you, uh, for those who watch this, and I just appreciate your prayers for. Some families at church, they've lost some loved ones this week uh, within just a couple days of each other, different families. And then my uh, supervisor also lost his son this morning to alcoholism. So if you keep those people in your prayers, just, you know, general prayer, God be with them, whatnot, you know, however you choose to do. I hope you've gotten something out of this uh, study here. I hope you can see the similarities of the, the wedding and, and Christ. Uh, time here on earth. May you have a very Merry Christmas. And if you like my videos, give me a like, give me a thumbs up, give me a comment. God bless.